If you have a Bible, please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. As we look at God's Word this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, all of chapter 7. And we continue studying through Isaiah. We come to a well-known passage uh, related to uh, what we celebrate at Christmas and the birth of Christ and this prophecy here in chapter 7. We're going to read the whole chapter. Isaiah 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook, as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sherah Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. 
And that day every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with the hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. This is the word of our God. Let's pray together. Let's pray for his blessing upon this time. Lord, as we come to your word and we have heard it read aloud, we come to your word which is living and active. We thank you, Lord, that you use your word by your spirit. And so we pray that your spirit would, in the reading and in the preaching of it, create faith. Create faith in us who listen. Have mercy upon us who have little faith. Help our unbelief. We pray that you would give us faith in you through your Son. The Son that we confess is Emmanuel, God with us. Help us to know him. We pray In Jesus' name, amen. Is God incredible to you? Do you think God is unbelievable? Words uh, change meaning over time, and so the word incredible in our day usually means something that's just amazing. Uh, We don't mean it often in the literal sense, which is incredible, means I can't believe it. So something like Scientology. I find Scientology incredible, not amazing, but I can't believe that people believe that we have little space aliens that have broken apart and come to invade us. That's just incredible. But we often use it in the sense of amazing. So maybe tomorrow you'll put a slice of pie in your mouth and you'll say, this pie is incredible. You'll open a gift and you'll say, this is unbelievable. But that's not literally what the word means. So do you think God is incredible? And I ask the question in in both of those senses of the word. You either don't believe God You will not believe what God says. You have no faith. Or you find God incredible, amazing, awesome in the literal sense of that word as well. Which one are you? Well, here in this passage, we have two things. We have both a man who finds God incredible in the literal sense, King Ahaz. He refuses to place his faith in God and to believe anything that God says through his prophet Isaiah. But we also have an incredible promise in the sense that we often mean that word. That promise that we see in verse 14, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
Do you find that incredible? Is that unbelievable to you in the literal sense? Or do you find it amazing that God would work and bring this son whose name would be called Emmanuel? In this passage, it's really a call to faith, a call to believe things that are unbelievable according to maybe what our reason would tell us or what our senses might tell us. It's a call to faith. And in this famous promise of the Messiah in verse 14, it's in the context of this man who will not have faith. And so we need to learn for ourselves how we can live a life of faith. If we believe, verse 14, then the entire Christian life is also a life lived by faith. So this is what we want to see. As we see Ahaz, a man who finds God's promises incredible, he refuses to believe, but then we also see God's incredible promise. And those are the two parts uh, as we'll look through this passage. So as we start getting into chapter 7, we remember we've been in chapter 6 where God called Isaiah to become a prophet and to now preach. And really chapter 7 is chapter 6 in a nutshell. It's living out everything that God said would happen to Isaiah. Isaiah is called to go and preach to this man, King Ahaz, in chapter 7, and to call him to faith and to believe the good news, to believe that God wants to help him and save him. But King Ahaz, hearing that message, actually hardens his heart. Just like God said would happen. Isaiah, you're going to make the heart of this people dull. And it's by going to King Ahaz and, and Ahaz hardening his heart that actually Ahaz brings the judgment even further on himself. It's because, as we're going to see, because he refuses to have this faith in what God promises, that he then goes off to Assyria and looks to Assyria for help. But Assyria is going to be the one that actually destroys him. The judgment of God, see, will come upon him because he hardens his heart. He hardens his heart because Isaiah goes to him and preaches to him. But we saw at the end of chapter 6 that God had also promised a remnant, a holy seed of an oak that would be cut down. And it's no coincidence, I don't think, that in verse 2, when Ahaz receives this bad news that he's afraid of, it says his heart shakes like a tree in the forest. He's a tree that's about to fall down. The kingdom of Judah is going to get cut down. And now we're going to see how this is going to work out. Syria and Ephraim, they get some little chops into the oak tree. But then Assyria, the great empire, is the chainsaw that's going to come and bring the tree down and fell the tree because of Ahaz refusing to listen to Isaiah. But also, God had promised a tenth, a remnant, out of that stump of the tree. And that's what he's promising in verse 14. A holy seed, Emmanuel himself, will come 
out of this stump of the kingdom of Judah that is felled by Assyria. So let's start looking at the story in chapter 7 as we now in history get to play out everything that God said would happen in chapter 6. First we have Ahaz. That's where the story starts. And in these 12 verses we have this back and forth between Ahaz and Isaiah. Ahaz's fear, Isaiah calling him to faith and they go back and forth. We find out that the king now is King Ahaz. Uh, Uzziah died, remember, in chapter 6. His son was Jotham. Jotham did not have a very interesting reign uh, in the end of the day. Then Jotham's son was King Ahaz. He's the king of Judah. Ahaz is a wicked man. He offered his children as sacrifice to pagan gods. He's a fair-weather believer. He will basically go worship any god that he thinks is going to help him the most at that time. And so he sacrifices children to, to these gods. Then he goes and worships this god and this god. And he has no faith at all in the real god, the god of Israel, Yahweh. So he's a wicked man. And now we find out in this story that he has a threat coming towards him. Uh, Syria, these two nations, Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and their king is Rezin, the king of Syria, Pekah, the, the king of the, the northern kingdom in Israel. They have uh, already attacked Judah before, and you can read about that in Chronicles. They've already attacked Judah before. They've, they've weakened Ahaz. They've taken many captive uh, back to Damascus in Syria, and so uh, Ahaz is really at a very weak point now. And he's actually also been attacked by Edom and Philistia on the east and the west. So he's got enemies into the south in Egypt, to the east in Edom, to the west in Philistia, uh, north in the Syria and Israel. Surrounded by enemies, already weak, already been decimated. And now he gets news, more news. In verse 2, Syria is in league with Ephraim. They have come up. They have made an alliance with each other. They have gathered their armies. They are setting up camp. They're right outside, ready to invade the kingdom of Judah. And so Ahaz thinks, this is the end. I'm going to die. My kingdom's going to fall if, if we don't do something. And so verse 2 says his heart and the heart of peace people shake like a tree when the wind blows through a forest. He's afraid. Now Ahaz is the villain in the story and so it's kind of easy to look down on him and uh, see how terrible of a guy that he is. But we can put ourselves in Ahaz's shoes. We can understand the natural fear when you get bad news. Uh, there's a psalm, uh, Psalm 112, of the godly man who is not afraid of bad news. There's Proverbs 31 that talks about the, the woman who laughs at the days to come. But the reality is, we don't like bad news. When you're faced with death, 
Your heart shakes. You shake. When you receive news of of sickness or that you're losing everything, that you're losing your job, you don't smile and laugh at those times. You know what it's like to have terrifying news that, that makes your heart shake. And so, like him, we now have the choice. Verse 3, God says to Isaiah, go meet Ahaz. God wants to come to you and me when our hearts are shaking and trembling before suffering and pain and death. And God wants to send messages of good news. Calls to faith to look to him in those times when our hearts are shaking. And so God sends Isaiah by his mercy, by grace, this wicked man. Isaiah, go and meet Ahaz. He also tells him to take his son. His son's name is Shi'ar Jashub. Uh, In Hebrew, his name means the remnant shall return. So God tells Isaiah to take his son because his son is a sign of God's promise, God's faithfulness. A remnant shall return. So the call to King Ahaz, just by the presence of Isaiah's son, is Ahaz, if you will listen, if you will trust in my promise, if you will rely upon my promise, then you can be part of the remnant because there will be a remnant. It will return. It's just your place in it. You will either be part of it by faith or you will reject my message and you will be destroyed. So God comes with good news. He comes with sign to help us in our faith, to call us to faith. Isaiah is told to meet Ahaz at this conduit of the upper pool by the washer's field. I like to think that Ahaz is at the laundromat. It's the washer's field. It's at a pool, and and there's a water source that would go to the washer's field where people would all wash their clothes. Why is Ahaz at the laundromat? Maybe he's, you know, people, uh, scholarly people, they say, well, he's checking on the water supply because he's worried about the enemy coming, and, and what if his water supply runs out? So maybe he's doing that. Maybe he's just nervous and fearful. So he needs something to do, and he's, he goes to the washer's field, the laundromat. But whatever it is, uh, he's not doing what he's supposed to do. Ahaz is not uh, confidently in his palace strategizing with the military generals about how they're going to beat back uh, Syria and Israel. He's not in the temple. He's not going to God like King Hezekiah did and spreading out his arms before God and saying, God, please help me. I have no one but you. He's afraid. He's nervous. He's agitated, worried about what's going to happen. And so God sends Isaiah and he says to to Isaiah in verse 4, Tell Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Does Isaiah put his arm around Ahaz and say, 
don't fear. They're just uh, smoldering stumps. Or does he say, man, what is wrong with you? Why are you out by the washer's field? Chill out. Be quiet. Don't fear this. These two guys are smoldering stumps. A smoldering stump is a piece of wood that you take out of the fire and it's black at the end and it's got a little bit of smoke. You don't need to fear that some great fire might be started by that smoldering stump. It's very easy. You can stick that stump in the dirt or in water or just stomp on it and it's gone. So here's God's promise to Ahaz here. They will not destroy you. I promise. They are smoldering stumps. And then the rest of verses 5 to 9, when he talks about the head of Syria is Damascus, all of that means that the king of Syria, he's going to remain in power in Damascus, but he's not going to be in power in Jerusalem. He says, Ephraim, and at the end of verse 8, Ephraim will be shattered in 65 years. This is God's promise. This is what will happen. So calm down. You don't need to be afraid of them. You don't need to be all agitated. And so he calls him at the end of verse 9 to be firm in faith. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith, it will be your undoing and your destruction. So this story is about political events, international politics. And Isaiah is exactly right. This is exactly what takes place. Isaiah is telling him, these little kingdoms of Syria and Israel are not what you need to fear. You need to, you need to uh, worry politically about Assyria. You see what happens is that because King Ahaz is afraid of these two little kingdoms and their alliance coming against him, he actually, instead of responding in faith, he actually goes and makes his alliance with Assyria. But it's by making that alliance with Assyria that he weakens himself. He pays taxes and taxes and taxes for years and years, weakening him the whole time. And then Assyria comes and attacks Judah. That's why he ends up not being firm at all. If he had stood firm and, and not feared this threat, everything would have been fine. He doesn't stand firm. He tries to figure it out on his own and his anxiety and nervousness. And so he goes and makes an alliance with Assyria. His alliance is actually what ends up killing him. It ends up the end of his kingdom. So just like Ahaz, we have this same sort of problem. Ahaz digs his own grave. Ahaz concocts a potion that he thinks will be medicine to save his life, but it's actually the poison that ends it. And we're like that too. When we do not stand firm in faith, when we try to figure out things on our own and solve our own problems, isn't it often how that ends up just ruining us, making our lives even worse? 
Think about moral compromise. You think that by compromising your morality, what's right and wrong, that it'll maybe get you ahead or it will achieve something good in your life or it'll just make you feel better. And then when you compromise your morality, it actually ends up making you miserable, bringing disaster upon your life. You see it with people and they're craving with money to always have more and more and to make it rich. It's one of the reasons that playing the lottery is such a foolish thing. People, if they would take that money and invest it, they would actually have a lot more money than the money that they just throw away by buying a lottery ticket. So why do they do it? Because they crave riches. They are pursuing this thing that they think will bring them riches, and it actually just keeps them poor. It's how it works. When we have relationships, we really uh, want to uh, have relationships with others. Maybe we want to fix a relationship. Uh, we try to scheme and we, we try to do all this work. We think that it's all up to us instead of relying upon the Lord to maybe fix a relationship or to bring about a relationship. And it ends up just pushing people away even more. It happens with parenting. Sometimes we parent as if the salvation of our children is entirely dependent upon us and our works. And so we must do every single little thing exactly the way that we think that it must be done when what it actually does is what Paul says in Ephesians. You provoke your children to wrath. You can push your children away with a, a certain uh, overbearingness of parenting. And it all comes down to works versus faith. We think that we have to do something to achieve a certain end. And of course the tricky thing is that of course we know that God uses often the things that we do. We're not just called to just sit around all day and just pray for God to bring things about. There are things that we have to do, but sometimes we put too much emphasis on us having to do everything perfectly. And if we don't do it perfectly, then failure comes. Rather than standing firm, doing what the Bible says, and then trusting God to work everything else out. Work hard. Do the right thing. Pray. God will work out his sovereign purpose. So it's like the, the psalm says, the horse is prepared for battle, but the, uh, but the battle belongs to the Lord. The victory belongs to the Lord. And sometimes we have to say, the victory belongs to the Lord and doesn't belong to me doing everything perfectly. So that's, that was Ahaz's problem. Trying to figure it out nervously and anxiously, making all of his plans, when actually what God was calling him to do was trust that the victory belongs to 
the Lord. So God in his mercy brought Isaiah to preach a message of good news, a promise. He also wants to even now, in even more mercy, give him a sign. And so, in verse 11, he says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Basically, I'm giving you a blank check. Ask me anything. As high or low as you want anything in the world, I'll do it for you. He wants to confirm and encourage his him so that he would have faith by giving him a great sign. But Ahaz says in verse 12, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now here we see Ahaz, the great religious hypocrite. The man who sacrifices his children to foreign gods quotes the Bible to disobey God. Oh, no, I'm not going to ask God for a test because Deuteronomy 6 says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You remember Jesus quoted that to Satan. And just like Satan misquoted scripture to Jesus, Ahaz misquotes scripture to Isaiah. No, I won't ask God for a test. I'm too good for that. Child sacrificer, wicked King Ahaz. I will not put the Lord to the test. And really, this is just a way for him to get out of it. He doesn't want a sign from God because he doesn't want faith. He wants to do it on his own. He wants a salvation by works. People are like this today. Religious hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in the name of religion. Disobedience of God by quoting a Bible verse. God gives signs to the Christian of salvation like Baptism and the Lord's Supper, but people will say, oh, I don't need to be baptized. Baptism doesn't save me. Faith in Christ alone saves me. And you see, it's true. Faith in Christ alone saves you. But does Jesus command you to be baptized? Yes, he does. So are you going to quote the Bible to disobey Jesus' command? People say, oh, I don't need to go to the church. Going to church doesn't save you. Well, you you can sit in the garage. That doesn't turn you into a car. And so uh, sitting in church doesn't turn you into a Christian. Well, that's a true statement. But you're just saying that to justify disobedience. The Bible commands that Christians go to church and worship him. So we're just like Ahaz. Ahaz fails. Ahaz has no faith. He finds God's promise incredible that God will deliver him from these two kingdoms. Ahaz is a man who walks by sight, not by faith. And so the question is, do you find God incredible? Do you refuse to believe God? Do you refuse to trust God and do what is right and what he commands? When when he's giving you commands to do things, do do you find it hard to believe what he says? At the foundational level, uh, Ahaz is an example of 
trying to achieve salvation by works and not by faith. And maybe some here are trying to live that way too. Even when it comes to salvation and eternal life and how your sins can be forgiven. Do you think that at the end of the day it's up to your planning and your scheming and your working and your doing and being a good person. That that is how you can get rid of your sins and work them off and pay them off. Because that's how God will accept you is just be a good person. That's the salvation by works that Ahaz lived and he failed at. He failed to please God. Or maybe for us who are Christians, we still struggle with this. We have doubts about God. We doubt God's goodness, his love, his faithfulness, his promise to work all things together for our good. And like I said, remember, it's, it's when those times come, like in verse 2, when your heart is shaking That's when the doubts and the questions come. I I know that uh, every member of this church knows all the right answers about the promises of God and the sovereignty of God. But it's when the rubber hits the road and you feel the pain shooting through your body. When you are lying on the hospital bed. When you are at the funeral. That's when you have the questions And that is when you have to decide whether you will walk by sight or by faith. Whether you will live as Ahaz does and lead to not standing firm at all. Or whether you will stand firm in your faith. Now, Unlike King Ahaz, we don't have an Isaiah who gets to show up right in front of us. While we're busy anxiously doing the laundry trying to fidget because we are so scared and nervous. We don't have Isaiah coming to us and saying, look, don't worry about that. Uh, uh, you're you're going to be healed. Just trust God. Uh, the person's not going to die. Trust God. You'll, you'll not end up in financial ruin. Trust God. Unlike Ahaz, we don't have that opportunity. And so the call to faith is not a call to believe Everything's just going to work out. Everything that I think is bad going to happen isn't going to happen. That's what I meant by working out. The bad things won't happen. But we have the word of God, just like Ahaz does. We have the word of God that tells us that we can be content in every circumstance. That God does work all things together for good for those who love God. We have the command to take up our cross and to obey him. And that if you leave your father and mother, you will have hundreds and thousands of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. And that obedience brings reward. These are the things in the word of God that you need to believe. These are the things that you doubt. Look, yeah, I can say in theory God works all things together for good, but I don't see how he's going to work this thing. Yeah, you just don't get it. I know that obedience brings blessing, but but this thing is going to be impossible. I can't do this. I, I can't 
follow this. I can't live this out. How is that going to work? It's not going to work for me. So that's, that's our hearts shaking before the wind. Being like Ahaz. God calls you to faith. Stand firm in faith. Believe his promises when the rubber meets the road. When those moments of pain and difficulty come into your life. Call to mind by faith what the word of God says. You can be content in this circumstance. God will work this for your good. God calls you to obey and he will bless you. So then we come to the second part of the passage where we see God's incredible promise. Because Ahaz won't put the Lord to the test, though God commanded him to, Isaiah says in verse 13, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Isaiah says, you're wearing me out, man. You're wearying me and you're wearying God. And you know, God... uh, God doesn't rest. God doesn't get tired. But this is a a way of expressing the terrible way that Ahaz is behaving. You're wearying my God also. So, what does Isaiah do? Walk away? No, we see God slow to anger, abundant in mercy. God could walk away right now after verse 13. Tired of you, faithless people. Tired of you. Done with you. But no. He's going to give a sign anyway. A sign to a man who doesn't even deserve it. So he says in verse 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I'll read uh, verses 15 to 17 uh, to have a more of an understanding of what this is about. So verse 15, he says, He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So the promise in verse 14 is one of the most debated verses in the Old Testament. How do you understand this, especially in light of the New Testament? What does this mean? Jews, who obviously don't want to see Jesus as the Messiah, they say that this son maybe is Hezekiah or Isaiah's son that we'll read about in chapter 8. Liberal theologians say that uh, because they don't believe in any miracles, they don't believe a a virgin can give birth to a son. So they say, well, this is really just talking about a young lady. And there's a young lady that Isaiah is pointing to. And he says, that lady is one day going to have a son. And she's going to call his son Emmanuel. I don't believe, and I hope none of you believe any of those things, but among those who believe the Bible and we believe in miracles, there's still some debate about who this son is. In other words, the question is, is it a son who is born in Isaiah's day? Some people say maybe it is Isaiah's son. 
or some other son. And then later on, Jesus uh, fulfills it in an even greater way. So there's like a double fulfillment. Or is it only about one son, Jesus? So this is a prophecy about 730 years later, there will be a son who is born. And that, that we know is Jesus. And the reason this is a question is because then you have to figure out when is this happening? What time is this talking about? So uh, just so you know, I'm, I'm for the view that it is only about Jesus. It's directly predicting only Jesus. It's not a double fulfillment. So what about the timing, though, in verses 15 through 17? Talking about this boy, this Emmanuel child. He will eat curds and honey. Well, um, this is talking about the time when, as he says at the end of verse 17, the king of Assyria will come. So, uh, before, I'm trying to, try to get this right, uh, the, the before, what happens before, uh, the king of Assyria will come before the boy comes, Okay. Verse 16, before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted, and then Assyria will come. So Syria and Israel, they will be wiped out, and then Assyria will come before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good. Uh, Verses 18 to 20 talk about how God is going to hire the king of Assyria Verses 21 to 25, I'm not going to read them. They talk about the desolation that will come. Now, what is this about curds and honey? Well, he explains in verses 23 and 25, and we don't have time to read it again, but the curds and honey are a bad thing, not a good thing. You might think curds and honey is a delectable diet, but uh, it's not a good thing in this context. It's a diet for nomads. It's a good diet if you're a nomad. And so the point, uh, as it says in verses 23 to 25, is that uh, the land is desolate. The land is destroyed. There are no crops. So everybody's a nomad. So all you got are your cows. And uh, people say about some places today, uh, there are more cows than people. And that's usually not a compliment when there are more cows than people in a place. It usually means that there's not a lot of economy going. Not a lot of people there, uh, not a lot of hustle and bustle. And so that's the, the prophecy here. There will be more cows than people. And so there will be people who are just walking their cows around like nomads. And their diet will be curds from that cow and the honey that they find out in the wild. Nothing else, no vegetables. So that's supposed to be a negative, okay? The land is desolate. So all of this will happen, will happen before the child knows how to refuse evil and choose good, verse 15 and 16. Some people get tripped up by this. Uh, they say, well, this can't be about Jesus. Jesus doesn't do evil. Jesus doesn't know evil. Well, this isn't talking about doing evil. It's talking about moral discernment. Children are gullible. 
Children don't have the moral discernment that they, uh, they, they need as, as adults. And that's why people can get children to believe all sorts of things. If you know what I mean around this time of year. Children are gullible to believe things. Uh, people use children and abuse children because children don't have the discernment to know that something is evil. And so they take advantage of that. So this isn't talking about doing evil, but about the ability to recognize evil and good. So when it comes to Jesus, remember what the Bible says about the boy Jesus, that he grows in wisdom. And Hebrews 5 verse 8 says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. That doesn't imply that Jesus ever sinned. But it just says that as Jesus grew older, as he had opportunities to resist different temptations, he becomes more and more aware as an adult man of how evil certain evils are. And, and so he resists them. He's, he always resisted them when he was a child, but now he has a greater understanding in his human nature of this evil. Now, the other thing that trips people up is they say, well, how can this be a prophecy for Ahaz about Jesus if this happens 730 years later? Ahaz, don't be afraid. 730 years from now, there will be a boy called Emmanuel. Thanks a lot. I'll be long dead by then, Ahaz says. Well, here the promise we have to see is not really for Ahaz. It's for the house of David. Verse 13, O house of David, the Lord will give you a sign. The, the, the pronouns there in 13 and 14 are plural pronouns, not talking directly to King Ahaz, but to talking to all the house of David. The Lord himself will give you all a sign, O house of David. And so the sign is that the king will come from the house of David. He will be called the Emmanuel child. He will be born of a pregnant virgin. That's literally what the wording says. It doesn't say she will conceive. Um, so, you know, some people will say, oh, well, you know, there's just this young lady and one day she's going to get married and after she's married, she will conceive. No, that's not what it says. It says she will be a pregnant virgin who will bear a son. And so the sign is not the mother. Sign is the son. When this son is born, it will be a sign that God has kept his promise to the house of David. You know in that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Israel mourning in lonely exile, calling out, where is Emmanuel? And throughout their history, as Assyria comes and chops the oak tree down, Babylon comes and devours the nation of Judah and Jerusalem, and then Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire come, and then the Roman Empire. For hundreds and hundreds of years, you look around and all you see 
is the stump of the house of David. All you see is that you've been defeated over and over again, that your land is desolate, that you are not free. You're always under someone's thumb. And you wonder, when is Emmanuel coming? Isaiah is going to develop more about who this child will be. He's going to Say, he's going to bring him up uh, next time in chapter 8. He's the king who owns the land. He's going to bring him up in chapter 9. And he's going to tell us that he's mighty God. So God with us and mighty God is, is this king from the house of David. And then in chapter 11 that he's going to establish this perfect kingdom of righteousness. And so Israel looks around and they say, okay, this, this kingdom isn't here yet. When is it coming? When is the Emmanuel child coming? And then Matthew writes his gospel. And Matthew sees that all of these things that Isaiah promised are fulfilled in this child. Born of the Virgin Mary. Mary wasn't just some young woman who ended up having a child. But she says, I have never known a man. How can this be? This is a miraculous conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. Matthew sees this child is the one in chapter 7 verse 14 prophesied about. Matthew sees that by calling him Emmanuel, it means that God himself would be with us. His birth means that he's a man. But his conception, and the way that he was conceived, shows us that he is God, so he is Emmanuel. God is now with us. Some people say, this is unbelievable. This can't happen. And every religion professor at an Ivy League school will tell you that this is all nonsense. This doesn't happen. Births don't happen this way. And we all know that. That's why we are called to faith. And so the call that Ahaz actually had is the call that Israel had throughout the centuries to have faith that Emmanuel will come. And it's the call that is still out there for every single person. This is an incredible promise. An incredible, amazing event. Will you believe it? Do you believe it? Or do you write it off as just religious nonsense? You are called to be amazed by this promise. And this sign of the sun coming is meant to strengthen your faith. God kept his promise. God preserved the line of David so that Emmanuel would come. As Alexander the Great is going out and doing his battles, as Roman emperors were fighting their battles, you know, God was sovereignly ordaining every battle, every empire, for the sake of this one child. 
to orchestrate everything so that this one child would be born on that day from the womb of Mary, Jesus, who is God with us. So for the Christian, as this sign is given to strengthen our faith, we might find it easier to believe in the virgin, uh, virgin birth of Jesus. You might find it easier to have it as a, as a doctrine that you can lodge away somewhere in your head and say, yeah, well, I believe that. But it's meant to increase your faith. If you believe in that, why do you doubt anything that God says? Why do we doubt God's promises? God's faithfulness, God's goodness. The Emmanuel child came. He died in the place of sinners. He rose from the dead. God kept his promises, and God promises that he always will be with us. I think of Stephen in Acts as he dies. He dies, and he sees Jesus. Jesus is with him. Jesus is saying, I am with you. Though I've gone up into heaven, I am with you in your death. As you suffer, I will bring you to myself. I will be with you forever. Do you believe God's promises? Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that you are the faithful God. Even when we, your people, are faithless, you will be faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. We thank you for how you kept your word in bringing the Emmanuel child. We thank you for all the work of Jesus Christ, God with us, and your promise to always be with us to the end of the age. Well, Lord, we pray that we would stand firm in faith, that you would increase our faith. We pray that you would help us as we look forward to the day when the Lord Jesus will return again to long for and have faith that he will appear again to show that he is the true king, our Savior. And we pray all these things through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.